0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society.
1: My name is Sherry Schock.
0: And my name is Bob Shock.
1: And now, here's the host of Lighthearted, Jeremy Dontremont.
0: Welcome, and happy 4th of July. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell-Shaw, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle.
2: Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there happy 4th of July.
0: Today's subject is a lighthouse that's one of my favorites and I know a lot of other people feel that way about it too. We'll be talking with Brian Teft, the executive director of the Rose Island Lighthouse and Fort Hamilton Trust in Newport, Rhode Island. I want to thank today's special guest announcers Sherry and Bob Schock of Pennsylvania. They're regular listeners and I really appreciate their support anyone who would like to be a guest announcer on a future episode should contact me at jeremy at USLHS.org. this is episode 126 of lighthearted and this is july 4th 2021 of course we all know that something very important for this country happened on july 4th 1776 but what has happened on the state and lighthouse history michelle on july
2: 4th 1882 Standard Rock Lighthouse on Lake Superior in Michigan was first lighted. It took five years and $300,000 to build the tower, which is 10 miles from the nearest shore. It's constructed of sandstone blocks weighing 12 to 30 tons each. Standard Rock originally had a second-order Fresnel lens, and the light could be seen for about 25 miles. Today, the lighthouse is being restored for use as a climate research station by the Superior Watership Partnership and Land Conservancy.
0: On July 4th, 1927, the American playwright Neil Simon was born in the Bronx, New York. He once said, quote, I love living. I have some problems with my life, but living is the best thing they've come up with so far, unquote. So let's talk about our main subject today, Rose Island Lighthouse.
2: 18-acre Rose Island, about a mile offshore from Newport, Rhode Island, has a commanding position in Narragansett Bay's East Passage. The waters around Newport were busy with passenger steamers, fishing boats, and freighters in the mid-19th century.
0: The southwest corner of Rose Island was an ideal place for a light to help guide navigators passing through the East Passage of the bay. On July 20th, 1868, Congress appropriated $7,500 for a lighthouse, and the site chosen was a surviving bastion of 18th century Fort Hamilton.
2: The lighthouse is 35 feet tall, with its focal plane 48 feet above the water. The octagonal lighthouse tower rises from the west side of the mansard roof on top of the handsome one-and-one-half-story wooden keeper's dwelling.
0: The lighthouse went into service on January 20, 1870, with a 6th order Fresnel lens exhibiting a fixed red light. A fog bell tower and striking apparatus were added to the station in 1885, with the bell striking a double blow every 15 seconds.
2: The majority of the island, formerly used for military purposes, was declared surplus after World War II. The light lost its importance as a navigational aid with the construction of the Newport Bridge in 1969. The island was sold to a group of local businessmen who, in the 1980s, proposed to build a 125-unit condominium complex and a 200-slip marina.
0: In the 1980s, a group of dedicated preservationists founded the Rose Island Lighthouse Foundation to protect the historic structure. In 1985, the Rose Island Lighthouse Foundation began the process of restoring the building inside and out. The lighthouse has been restored to the 1912-1915 to period.
2: In 1992, the lighthouse was open to the public, and on August 7, 1993, it was relighted as a private aid to navigation. You can now stay overnight at Rose Island for a taste of lighthouse service life. You can stay in the restored downstairs rooms or in the upstairs apartment.
0: In recent years, much restoration has been completed, including the installation of a replica 6th order Fresnel lens. Rose Island Lighthouse is also open for tours to schools and other groups.
2: The Rose Island Lighthouse Foundation recently changed its name to the Rose Island Lighthouse and Fort Hamilton Trust, also known as RIFH Trust. Brian Teft is the executive director of the trust. Brian is also a biologist with extensive experience with natural resource management, wetlands, environmental policy, and education.
0: I spoke with Brian Teft recently. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking today with Brian Teft, and Brian is the executive director of the Rose Island Lighthouse and Fort Hamilton Trust in Newport, Rhode Island. Thanks so much for joining me, Brian. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Rose Island is a place that's uh, very near and dear to me. Maybe I could say a little bit more about that. I have a, a history with it, but uh, it's a special place. It's a beautiful place, as I'm sure some of our listeners are, are well aware I'm just curious, uh, what led you to become the executive director for the RIFH Trust?
1: Well, this is sort of a, a second career for me. I uh, spent my life work uh, working for the Department of Environmental Management in Rhode Island. Uh, I was a wildlife biologist there and worked in the Division of Fish and Wildlife. And the work there involves a lot of variety involving the restoration and management of all the wildlife within the state, you know, everything from the hunted species to the non-hunted species, birds, mammals, fish, invertebrates, everything, really. I specialized in the terrestrial side and the wildlife side. So I spent a fair amount of time uh, in my responsibilities, managing habitats for the benefit of species, restoring habitats and managing them to meet the, the needs of those wildlife and I also spent a fair amount of time doing some research and survey on different species. I I tended to specialize in in deer management and wild turkey restoration. I spent a lot of time restoring the wild turkey to Rhode Island. It was sort of an <laughs> uh, important part of our uh, wildlife management program, you know, making sure that species could be restored. This was a bird that had been extincted from the state back in probably the late 1700s. Wow. Uh, But uh, across the country, it's a popular restoration program to bring the native wildlife back. So I worked in that. And uh, in 2017, I got to the end of the road there and I retired from the state after 32 and a half years and decided that, uh, you know, uh, I needed something else to do. So I was looking around and I saw that there was an advertisement in a local uh, job posting uh, for a tour guide on Rose Island. Because I had been to Rose Island a couple of times professionally, looking at the wildlife there and doing some surveys, and had been there also uh, privately with my family. So I knew of the lighthouse, I knew the sustainability and all the, you know, the restoration efforts that had gone on there. So Mm -hmm. I applied and I got the job. So I was working part time, I was working at that point, maybe anywhere between 10 and 15 hours a week, greeting guests and doing stuff like that. I actually offered to help with the uh, the maintenance because there was only one guy there at the time. And there's a lot to do, as you know, you've been yeah. there. So oh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff to do there. Sure. Uh, and in the summertime, the guests are coming and going and it doesn't leave a lot of time for one guy to do grass mowing and painting and repair work and stuff like that. So, so I started to do a little bit of that. And by the end of that year, they were looking for a backup captain. They only had one captain working for them. So I ended up going forward and got my captain's license so I could operate hmm. the boat. Okay. We have a 32 foot lobster boat, uh, the starfish, that takes our guests in and out of the the, the facility. So uh, I obtained my captain's license, amassed a master master license with the Coast Guard and uh, became able to run the boat. And throughout the next year, uh, you know, like it continued on that way, but the the property manager basically left the job and uh, that opened uh, at kind of a critical time. They needed help right away. So I stepped in and took over those duties And within a few months, uh, I became the executive director because the the current director left the job. So Mm -hmm. uh, it was a pretty, I wasn't really looking for it. I was looking to stay part-time, but it found me and I have good land management organizational skills. So it just happened, it it just happened. Mm -hmm. So I became full-time there uh, in August of 2018. And so 2019 was a busy year, it was first year that I was director, full year anyways, very successful year, we had a lot of great projects, we made significant improvements, our infrastructure had suffered. Just over the years, I mean, everything is so expensive, Uh, you know, everything from the solar, power, because we're off grid, to the cistern, to the generator, to the house itself, I mean, repairs are constant, something is always broken. Uh, I took over that you know, in a pretty aggressive way to try to straighten things out, and uh, it's been good. But then 2020 hit, causing the pandemic, so that was an- another challenge, just maintaining the place without any income, because mm-hmm. we, we survive on the income of our overnight stays and tour groups and things like that, but we lost an entire year of income. In fact, in 2020, sure. our income revenue stream declined by 72%, so mm-hmm, we had mm-hmm. very, very little to work with. That's how I came to be there, and uh, I'm continuing in that role uh, for the time being, and we'll see, uh, see uh, the improvements that we've made, I think, are really significant uh, along the way. And hopefully we can get into some of those things, that some of the changes that have happened on the island. One of the big changes was the name, and the reason why we changed our name was that Rose Island is a lot more than just the lighthouse. I mean, the right. lighthouse is really cool. Yep. Uh, we have two places there that are on the National Register of Historic Places: both Fort Hamilton and the lighthouse. With the assistance of the Department of Agriculture, I was able to get some funding to manage a lot of the vegetation, which again is kind of my specialty. So mm-hmm. there's been some good improvement. So we can talk about that. I don't want to ramble yeah. too
0: much. Yeah, uh, no, it's uh, there's so many components to it. You know, it's a it is a very historic place. But you know, even aside from the lighthouse, and we'll talk a bit about but Fort Hamilton as well. But so you had a a great background in uh, biology and wildlife, as you said, which would certainly be useful at Rose Island. There's a, you know, that's a big component of the place there, the natural environment and the wildlife, all kinds of birds and so forth, especially. But I'm, I'm wondering before you got, you said you worked as a tour guide first at Rose Island. So you obviously had an interest in that specific place, but were lighthouses kind of an interest of yours before?
1: I've always been into in lighthouses. I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with them because I know there are people that are obsessed with lighthouses. That we, we oh yeah, them.
0: <laughs> I know uh, a lot of them. I,
1: yeah. I, I had an, just an interest in them, and uh, you know, they're certainly interesting places. They're historically beautiful. I mean, I've been to several of the ones in Rhode Island, and you know, the southeast one comes to mind, Point Judith, uh, Westerly. I mean, they're all so iconic. So uh, that that's that's really where my interest was.
0: Oh, Rhode Island's got a great group of lighthouses, of course, mostly are in and around Narragansett Bay. Uh, right. For a lot of our listeners are right. well aware of that. Why is Rose Island uh, especially important to the Newport area, do you think?
1: Uh, well, you know, Rose Island is instrumental in the location that it sits. I mean, it sits at the out, outer skirts of the, of the harbor on the entrance to the Narragansett Bay. So its location is significant in that it's so so close yet so far, I guess would be the way I'd say it. You know, Newport's a pretty busy little city, you know, in the summertime, the population swells with all the incoming guests and and residents uh, combined with all the tourism that goes on there. I mean, it's a popular tourism place, but yet you can be out on Rose Island and none of that really seems to matter. You've been there. So, you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly
0: what you're you're talking about. You're so
1: close yet so far you can look at it and, uh, but yet it's so peaceful out there on a, on any given day during the summertime. That's kind of really an interesting place as far as that goes. And then, of course, Newport history is just so fantastic because, you know, it dates back to an important time during the country's formation, you know, during the Revolutionary War. Newport was the center of government in the state of Rhode Island for many, many years, and in a very important place. And the capital, you know, states of government was there following that. So it's really an important place uh, yeah. in that regard.
0: It was one of our most important ports in early America. Yeah, really. exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, I've discovered recently that, you know, the Navy, of course, been in Newport forever and ever. And the, really, it's the Civil War, which is why the Navy is in Newport. Annapolis being the center of Navy's uh, infrastructure historically uh, during the Civil War, they were concerned about the Confederacy overtaking it. And so they established a second port in Newport in the 1860s. Mm-hmm. And it, it turned out to be such a fantastic place that the admirals in charge said, we need to stay here. So yeah, they established yeah. the Newport Navy base and the Naval War College is, yeah. is still in Newport today.
0: Yeah. yeah, well, it's a great, great legacy in so many ways, all kinds yeah. of maritime yeah. and, and naval things there, in Newport. Right. Uh, so you mentioned the fort a few minutes ago, Fort Hamilton. Could you just tell maybe a, a bit about the history of Fort Hamilton? What makes that so important?
1: Rose Island was a fortification even before Fort Hamilton. So it's it, because of its strategic location. I mean, it faces within like, say, two miles, the entrance to the from the Atlantic Ocean into the Narragansett Bay. Mm-hmm. So you got the sweeping arm of Aquidneck Island coming around. And then you've got the Jamestown, Connecticut Island on the east on the west side. And so this narrow gap comes through. Uh, and when you pop through that gap, you're right in Newport Harbor. And so Rose Island faces that opening, and strategically, it's an important place to put guns if you were trying to protect your assets. Yep. Uh, across on the on the Aquidneck Island end is Fort Adams, which uh, you know named after President Adams, I'm sure of John Adams. Fort Hamilton after Alexander Hamilton, and then on Goat Island we had Fort George. So there were these three forts strategically located, that were important to uh, to uh, Newport protection. Mm -hmm. And in 1798, the government uh, commenced the construction of Fort Hamilton on Rose Island and they uh, constructed a barracks. They constructed curtain walls, a north, a south, an east and a west curtain wall, and two tower bastions on the southwest and northwest corners of the fort. And these were designed by a French major general who was an engineer named Toussaint. He was instrumental in uh, designing many of the early US forts on yeah. uh, Louis Toussaint was his full name. And uh, the reason being the, the US, the new US government was knowledgeable of the French. They had collaborated with the French during the revolutionary war uh, and their engineering skills at building forts was superior to the US. They were, he was encouraged to join and then started building these forts. Many of the early forts in the country were designed by this fellow. Between what 1798 and say eight, the War of 1812, there was a lot of construction that occurred. In fact, when you look at the picture of Rose Island and where it sits, that round wall in front is actually Fort Hamilton. Right. So when they built the lighthouse about 70 years later, they essentially filled in the the north the southwest bastion of Fort Hamilton and built the lighthouse inside of it. Fortunately or unfortunately. Fort Hamilton was never actually armed during that period. It never were any cannons there. There was no uh, garrison of soldiers. Uh, they didn't build the bomb-proof barracks, which still stands to this day. It's a, mm-hmm. what they call the first system fort, uh, which means that it were the first forts developed by the U.S. government. Relatively simple by comparison to Fort Adams, which was rebuilt three times. It's a, a third-level third fort. It? Yeah, third yeah. system fort, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, it, it might be, if, if not the only one of the best remaining examples of a first system fort anywhere in the country. Yeah. And so, you know, when we changed our name, it was to accentuate that fact. It's a pretty special place mm-hmm. and shows what uh, intact, uh, an intact fort would look like
0: at that point in time. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, first system forts are, are pretty, pretty rare. Uh, there's not much left.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've really, I don't have an official knowledge that that is a fact, that it's the one of the only, but I'm mm-hmm. sure there's not that many of them left. Fort Hamilton, I mean, uh, existed, uh, the names changed over time, you know, in the middle 1800s, there wasn't a lot of activity there, there were no, until, eight, until the Civil War, when the Navy came to Newport, Uh, It wasn't until 1872 that the Navy designated Goat Island as their torpedo station, which, because you know this, that Rose Island came into the prominence again in that it was designated as a naval magazine. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of an interesting fact that a magazine is a place where explosives are stored. So essentially, the barracks is a 200-foot-long building on Rose Island, 200 foot by say 60 feet wide. And it has nine chambers, which are domed ceilings with a brick and stone, native stone and brick uh, structure. Yeah. And the walls are about four to five feet thick. They're really Mm -hmm. thick. And it looks like the guns could actually have stuck out windows. So um, they called it the bomb-proof barracks. And Mm -hmm. recently, there was an army historian on the island within the last couple of weeks uh, associated with the Naval War College. And he said... Although I've seen references that this was designated a naval magazine, that really makes more sense than a barracks, she said, because this is way overbuilt for people. Mm-hmm. There's no way they would have put soldiers in a room with nine nine foot ceilings and four foot thick walls. It was probably built to store the gun cotton that they used in the early mines and torpedoes. Okay. And then later repurposed as a barracks. Yeah. So where the term barracks came, you know, because we think of a barracks as a personnel place, is Really unknown. It might be in the archives, the National Archives, and we hope to do a little bit more research on that. I have five interns this summer on Rose Island from Salva University, two of which will be working on historical preservation. So we're going to do a little
0: digging to see if we can find out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. I've certainly never seen any place that that looks like it. And I, it's interesting you brought that up because I've wondered that when I, I've been in some of those rooms and thought these are awfully big, <laughs> you know, for listed men to live in. It didn't seem. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it seems yeah. extremely unusual. But those those dome ceilings you're talking about in those rooms are pretty spectacular, be- beautifully built.
1: Yeah, that cantilevered arches. I had another architect on the island, a historical architect, a brilliant woman who who actually lives locally but works internationally, and she said these are called cantilevered arch, cantilevered arches, and these are in amazing condition. She said they're just amazing. The beauty of them. You yeah. gotta remember, 1798, everything had to be built by hand. <laughs> Yeah. And these are perfectly formed arches uh, in four four cardinal directions with a keystone in the middle. So, uh, you know, it had to be some coordinated engineering to make it happen.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, there's uh, some amazing building that went on. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to be- believe with the technology they had, what they could do at that time. Let's uh, talk about the lighthouse, of course. Uh, that's a, This is a podcast about lighthouses, so... Yeah. Yeah, we should talk about that. Although there's, there'd be plenty to talk about even without that. But let's talk about the human history of the lighthouse a little bit. It was a family station. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there was always a, a single keeper living there with his family. Uh, I think pretty much through the entire history of that lighthouse.
1: There were well, um, there were ten keepers between eighteen sixty nine or eighteen seventy and nineteen thirty nine. In nineteen thirty nine, mm-hmm. the U.S. Coast Guard took over. So at that point it became more of a barracks for the Coast Guardmen that were stationed there. Right. But there were 10 keepers that were, as you say, family men who stayed there. Many were Civil War veterans. The first assistant keeper that I'm aware of is Jules Johansson, who came in 1912. Okay. And that was the year that the foghorn, the, the steam-generated foghorn was added. That brick building in front of the lighthouse is the foghorn building. It housed the apparatus and it housed the foghorn that was built on Rose Island. User Hansen was an assistant. And as I understand it, there was a keeper and an assistant keeper. The assistant keeper's job was to maintain the foghorn. Interesting story. I did a little research recently and put two and two together. In 1894, there was a grounding of a Fall River Line ship on the rocks in front of the lighthouse. The fellow's name was, his, the captain was Elijah Danger Davis. And uh, the fog eater, <laughs> they call it, The fog eater. So he ran, he ran aground in the fog. Now, in 1894, there was no way to warn mariners of the fog or the rocks. Mm-hmm. In 1895, the fog bell, there was a mechanical fog bell added in 18... So a year after it went aground, they put the bell up. But it wasn't until 1912 that Johansen came to the island, and he became the first assistant keeper. I met his granddaughter last summer... Not last summer, 2019, 2020, we, mm-hmm. we lost. But 2019, this lady came up and introduced herself as Ms. Ms. Johansson. And she said, my great, I think she said my grandfather, it might've been a great grandfather, was stationed here. Tragically, mm-hmm. he died in a boating accident coming to the lighthouse. He drowned, fell off. The, it was cold weather. I, he probably fell in the ocean and, and drowned. Interesting story, that how it rounds about,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really interesting to know. And uh, I often say when I lecture and, and tell people about, you know, lighthouse stories, human stories, that, you know, it's not as romantic as people think, uh, lighthouse keeping in general. And if you delve oh, into right. the history of almost any offshore lighthouse, whether it's on an, an island or on a rock or whatever, if you're talking at least a mile or two or more uh, off the coast, you're going to find at least one or more tragedies in there in the history somewhere. So it's not, not unusual. These men and women were tough. I mean, we have
1: no idea how easy we have it today compared to their life with off the grid, no fresh water on that island. They had to collect rainwater. Everything that came to the island, they had to bring it by launch, 365 days of the year. Yeah. So, you know, it was a tough life.
0: It was, it was, it was, I think rewarding in in a lot of ways, but there's no doubt that it was extremely tough and you had to be a certain kind of person to to do that job for any length of time. Uh, Are there any other particular stories of the keepers and families who lived there over the years that really stand out for you?
1: Well, Curtis, obviously the Curtis family, they were the keepers. Charles Curtis was the keeper between 1887 and 1917, just prior to world war one. again, he was a civil war veteran. Uh, The story I like to tell is that his appointment is framed in in our lighthouse, and he was Mm -hmm. appointed in 1887 at an annual salary of $500 per year. And I I always show that to the people that come into the lighthouse because we can't relate. $500 annually was his salary. And the other thing is across the bay from Rose Island is the Ida Lewis uh, Lighthouse and known as the Ida Lewis Lighthouse. It's a, it sits on Lime Rock. It's a harbor light in Newport Harbor on the interior of the harbor. Yeah. And Ida Lewis is, I won't go into the whole story, but the short of it is that she took over as the lightkeeper at uh, that lighthouse when her father had a stroke and is credited quite an amazing woman of her time, uh, very strong rower, strong swimmer, saved over 18 uh, people in the course of her term as, as the lightkeeper. So yeah. she was pretty famous for her oh, day she was. Yeah. and she made her salary was $750 a year. So she made more money than, than Curtis.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, she, for a period was the highest paid lighthouse keeper in the country. That's uh, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, incredible when you think that today women are still fighting for equal pay, for, for equal jobs. There you go. Back yeah. then, uh, she was ahead of her time, right? <laughs> she was. She was, I think, in a lot of ways. She was and really I think one she most- was
1: appointed permanent lightkeeper by Burnside, William Burnside, who was the governor of Rhode Island and a pretty famous Civil War general.
0: Yeah. I think it was his advocacy that led her to getting the title of, of keeper. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, Ida Lewis is, Ida Lewis may be the most famous lighthouse keeper in American history. And actually, I interviewed uh, Lenore Skomel, who wrote a great book about Ida Lewis, uh, interviewed her for this podcast. The book was uh, Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. And uh, if people want to read more about Ida, that's a great one to check out. Right, Um, right.
1: Get back to Curtis, because you asked me the question you asked was about stories about the, so that was one little story. The other story is that Curtis was instrumental in our present history as well, because his grandson, Wanton mm-hmm. Chase, lived on Rose Island with him as a result of having had very poor health as a child. So Curtis's extended family lived in Newport. His daughter had three boys or three children. I'm not sure they were all boys, but three children. Wanton was the youngest, and he had very poor health. They didn't quite know at the time. Turned out, I think he had was born with only a, a single lung or something to mm. that effect. Anyways, he suffered poor health as a child, and Grandma... Curtis convinced mom to allow wanted to live on Rose Island with them in the period of say 1912 to say 1917, five or six years. He was uh, probably five or six years old at the time. And he lived with his grandparents on Rose Island during that period of time. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward to the 1980s, when this citizen startup group formed to save the lighthouse, let's save the lighthouse. And I think Charlotte was involved in that Charlotte Johnson Johnson, and several other instrumental people in the city of Newport that wanted to save this lighthouse from demolition. And they established an office in Newport. And one day, this fellow, old fellow, comes to the office and said, hey, I understand you're restoring the Rose Island Lighthouse. He said, would you like some help? Turned out that young fellow was Wanton Chase, the grandson of Charles Curtis. And so the lighthouse today that we have is built to look as it did in 1912 to 1918, when Wanton Chase lived there as a child.
0: I actually have a story related to that that you might have heard, but I'll 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 tell it in case you might not have heard. It. And for our listeners, probably haven't heard, heard this. But I know uh, that period when we were talking about when the lighthouse was restored to uh, the period when Want and Chase lived there as a boy. Uh, I heard that he when he first visited there and stepped into the kitchen that was all restored. Charlotte Johnson, who you mentioned, was the was the uh, director at that time. And he said something to her like, Oh, I can just smell my grandmother's cookies baking in yep. the oven. Yep. And you know, that shows how great the restoration was. But after that people kind of picked up that statement and they thought that he was saying that the ghost of his grandmother was, was there, that it was haunted by the ghost of his grandmother. So right. I don't know if you know about that, that, that kind of got twisted over the, over the years.
1: Yes. You know, this came up when we had, um, that paranormal show that came with Amos, uh, Andy and, uh, Amy, Amy, and Andy. I, I think it, I'm not sure if it was ghosts. Like I'm it's escaping me. I apologize, That's okay. but the the there was a medium that came with them that that said I'm feeling the presence of a, a person with the initials CC, and that would be Christina Curtis, who was it could be Charles Curtis. Well, could be Charles Curtis too, but his wife's name was Christina, so they were both CC. Mm-hmm. Could have been both, but that was interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. Maybe we'll touch on that subject a little bit more before we're done. But uh, talking about want and chase, uh, in recent years, there's been two children's books uh, about the keepers and families on Rose Island. That he was this, he and his uh, grandfather were the subjects of one of them. But then there was another one. Uh, could you say a little bit about those books?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, the first one, uh, one of our local authors uh, here in Rhode Island, uh, uh, Lynn Hinesman. Uh, worked with the prior director to establish this idea of creating a book or book series that would have some of the history of Rose Island Lighthouse told. And so the first one in the series of books was called The Curious Childhood of Wanton Chase. And it basically told the story that I just referred to you as, and many, many other things about what the island and life was like on Rose Island during the period of time when Wanton Chase lived there. Very successful, beautiful book, well-illustrated, well-written, and it, it kind of looks like a children's book, but it's really not. It's, it's an adult and children's book, and there's a tremendous amount of history and information about what life was like during the period when they lived there, 1900 to 1917, so uh, it's a, certainly a different world than we live today. I mean, they had, you know, no indoor plumbing. Uh, their only source of heat was the, that wood stove, wooden coal stove that you, you mentioned in the kitchen, uh, they they drank the rainwater, basically. Uh, they grew gardens and had farm animals, and it was a, a difficult life. Yeah. And then there was a second book recently written. We're having a uh, a book signing on June 5th with the author on Rose Island. Uh, it's called The Island Adventures of Paul Stedman. Now, Paul Stedman was the grandson of Jesse, Jesse Orton, who right. was- Keeper at Rose Island from 24, 1924 to 1936, I think, something like that. Paul was the grandson of, of J, uh, Jesse, and he, he lived there for a period of time with his grandpa uh, and experienced life on Rose Island. So he had, and that was across the years leading up to World War II, because leading up to, as I mentioned, the Coast Guard took over in thirty nine, when well, we were engaged in World War II at that point. And Rose Island became heavily militarized with guns and coastal artillery. So it was an interesting period of buildup at that time. So yeah, well, his stories are uh, are quite interesting as well.
0: There's a photo I love of uh, Paul Steadman with his grandfather, Jesse Yorton. I'm sure you know the photo I'm talking about. It's like a studio portrait of the two of them. In uniform? Uh, like yeah. a dress uniform. Yeah. yeah. With, uh, with yeah. Paul when he was a kid.
1: The, the official book uh, release has just occurred or will just occur. We've kind of seen pre copies of it, but uh, uh, it will be available to the public soon. And as I say, on June 5th on Rose Island, if anyone is local and would like to come, we'd love to have you. Yeah, um, Lynn will be speaking and we'll be giving tours. It'll be a quite a fun day to release this book. And, yeah. So celebrate the grand opening, uh, the summer opening of Rose Island Lighthouse again.
0: Right. I should mention that we're speaking on, what's today? May 19th, 20th? What is today? 20th
1: today?
0: May 20th. May 20th. Today's May 20th. But people will be hearing this later. So they'll also be hearing it, I believe, after the the oh, event that you're talking right. about. But that by the time people hear it, that book should be available. It
1: should be available. Absolutely. Yeah. Woodhull Press is the publisher.
0: Let's talk about the, uh, the restoration of the lighthouse. I know that's before your time there personally. I first saw Rose Island Lighthouse in 1989. It would have been August of 1989 because that was the 200th anniversary of uh, the uh, original lighthouse establishment, the, the lighthouse service in the United States, founded on August 7th, uh, 1789 by Act of Congress. So there was a big 200th celebration the US Lighthouse Society put on in Newport that year. And I was there for that with my wife. Was cut short because of a hurricane. Uh, so they're only a couple of days instead of a few days that were planned. But anyway, I was driving uh, across the Newport Bridge. or I guess the official name is the Claiborne Pell Bridge. Is that is that correct? Bridge, yep. Yeah. And uh, you see the lighthouse from the bridge, a bit distantly, but clearly. And I remember looking at it and seeing that it was all boarded up and looked like it was kind of a ghost of a lighthouse. But the uh, the restoration got, got going not that many years later. And again, I know it's before your time. But can you just tell a bit of that story of how the lighthouse was saved?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I, my first experience with the lighthouse was 1987. I went to the island professionally as a biologist to do a survey of Canada geese. Okay. So at that time in 87, there was no vegetation. It was grass. You could walk from one end of the island to the other uninhibited. Yeah, without any problems at all. And uh, the lighthouse, as you mentioned, was boarded up. Officially, the Rose Island Lighthouse Foundation came into being officially in 1985, but I don't think it was until a year later until they actually began the work on the site because they took a lot of startup. Uh, They received over $500,000 in donated labor and services and raised an additional amount of money. The figure I saw was $1.2 million spent on that place to restore it to the condition that you see it today. Yeah, And it took them between 1986 and 1993 on National Lighthouse Day, August 7th, 1993, the official lighthouse was opened and restored to the pub as, as a completed mm-hmm. lighthouse. It yeah. was actually relit on that day as a private aid to navigation. So yeah. Yeah. we are a private aid. We are an operational lighthouse uh, with a functioning beacon. We have a, a Fresnel lens that flashes uh, white every seven, every six seconds. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was an arduous product. Uh, I know one funny story that came out of it uh, prior to the foundation coming into being the lighthouse was heavily vandalized. Mm-hmm. So between the period of 1970, when it was decommissioned and 1985, when the foundation came into existence, it became kind of a party spot. So it was vandalized. It was pilfered. There was a lot of, uh, you know, stolen items out of there. And so and then once it was opened up, the wildlife moved in. So it was basically pigeons and gulls were living in the building and it was basically ready for demolition. And that group saved it. The structure, the bones of the building was strong. Mm -hmm. It was gutted inside, stripped outside, and then refurbished completely from the ground up. It was a uh, you know it was a really a labor of love I mean Charlotte and her group uh, Curtis bunting I know was a a name that comes to mind that was in, involved in it and many other people who I I don't want to slight if they're still listening uh that that were instrumental it was a real community effort so sure uh, what I've inherited is a quite a beautiful building that is itself on the national register of historical places
0: so. yeah uh, it's absolutely incredible i was so Please, uh, you know, uh, as I know, many, many people were to see that lighthouse come back from the dead, basically. I mean, it was so far gone and it's so, so beautiful. I know there's been several uh, restorations since then, kind of uh, phases of restoration. It's in fantastic. And in
1: those days, in those days, uh, Jeremy, we owned only the 1.5 acres. There's two lots on Rose Island. 1.5 acres is where the lighthouse sits. And the remaining property, which is about 16 and a half acres, was owned by private developers. Uh huh. Those in that era, we were concerned about the developers. They were looking at building condos and a marina and all this kind of fancy stuff. And the, the foundation was instrumental in kind of holding that off at hearing. And eventually they relented and we successfully received a grant from the state of Rhode Island to purchase the rest of the property. Mm-hmm. And the reason why this is where I was going to go before, you asked me about the ecology. Rhode Island was unique in that the vegetation was special to a group of birds called colony nesting wading birds. So these are birds that are, we traditionally think of as herons and egrets, ibis herons and egrets, and they like to nest in groups on uninhabited islands. It mm-hmm. turns out that Rose Island had the correct configuration and structure of habitat to attract these birds and so being a, a uh, threatened resource uh, that was instrumental in the state giving us the grant to purchase the island and save the habitat. Mm-hmm. So to this day during the period of April 1 to August 15th the interior of the island is off limits to humans. We observe this nesting period uh, refrain of any human activity back there. So these birds can, and we've had as many. Like last summer, we had a hundred ibis nesting on the island. Wow! Uh, great egrets. Um, at The peak of great egrets, there was probably 80 nests on the island. It's it's quite impressive the the biological productivity of these animals. So.
0: Yeah, so we're
1: fortunate to have that. And and that was the reason we got the grant. We were able to purchase the entire island. So it is protected as a wildlife refuge. It's known as the Rose Island Wildlife Refuge. Right. Protected in perpetuity, it will never be developed.
0: Yeah. We've also seen American oyster catchers there, which yes. are not real common. Yes.
1: Well, that's yeah. short we have those too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's a fantastic uh, place just for wildlife alone, never mind the, the lighthouse, but the lighthouse is great too. Yeah. So let's talk about what is there for visitors. Uh, first of all, uh, you mentioned the boat that belongs to the organization, but how do uh, visitors typically get to and from the island?
1: So, day visitors, uh, there is a ferry service that runs the harbor of Newport. It stops at Fort Adams and Thames Street and uh, Harate Park and Rose Island. So, it, it makes a loop around the harbor every hour. And so a lot of visitors come on the ferry uh, by just it's called a hop-on hop-off ferry. They can jump on the ferry for a small fee and come to the Rose Island spend a the day there. Yeah, uh, if you're a member, we do have a landing fee, so people pay a landing fee or an admission fee to come to the island to look around at the place and to go into the lighthouse. So that's that's how most people get there. We also have a lot of people that come on kayaks. They come in private boats. We don't have a lot of dock space, so usually they pull up on the beach or. Uh, they anchor and then swim in or or take a little dinghy in or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but it's popular. I mean, we, we usually have anywhere between 2,500 and 3,000 visitors come just on the day visits. Uh, yeah. They spend anywhere from an hour to the day there, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. between 10 and 4 p.m.
0: When I uh, visited there in the past, at least two or three times, I went from the Jamestown side, to the ferry from the Jamestown side. Does that still run from
1: from there as well? That's, that's where the ferry de- disembarks from, Jamestown, East Ferry in Jamestown. And it uh, it goes to Fort Adams and, again, makes that circle right. around the Inner Harbor. So it goes from Fort Adams to Ann Street Pier on Thames Street to Parade Park to Rose Island, to yeah. Jamestown. It keeps circling yeah.
0: in that direction. It's made that same circle for, for many years, I believe. Many
1: years. Yeah, it's very popular. They have several uh, several ferries that, that service. We we generally are serviced by the Catherine and it's uh, pretty popular. You can buy your ticket right on the ferry, which is a good thing for us.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've uh, enjoyed uh, a number of rides on that, that ferry over the years. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about the building itself. It's been you mentioned it's been restored. It's restored to what What era again? What years are we talking about? Well, it was restored era, to the period of
1: 1900 to 1912, something in that, in that period of time.
0: Which fits in with the, the childhood of uh, want and chase So you were talking right. about. But uh, one of the, the really neat features of the restoration, the stuff that's been done in, in uh, fairly recent years, was the installation of a replica, a sixth order uh-huh. Fresnel lens. Yes. Uh, And I another guest I've had on the podcast was Dan Spinella of Artworks Florida, who actually is the one who creates those replica lenses. And it's mind blowing the work he does. You cannot uh, anybody who doesn't know, even people who are really familiar with Fresnel lenses would not know that's a replica lens. Uh, It's really, really beautiful. Are people surprised when they see that and you tell them that's not glass, that's actually a replica?
1: Yeah, I, I most people are completely clueless when they look at that. So I mean, we tell I, I sometimes I don't even mention it, you know, unless they ask me, you know, it's a six daughter Fresnel lens. Uh, if they press, I will say it's a replica, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's it is a beautiful piece of work. There's no question about it. I mean, I lament the fact that we don't have the original but uh, the original Fresnel I've asked Charlotte and others where it went to and I've gotten varying answers. I figured it might have been taken out by the Coast Guard, but Charlotte theorizes it might have been just vandalized and thrown into Narragansett Bay,
0: which That's would very be a magic
1: thing. Yeah, but.
0: yeah, well, a lot of them were before people knew better. A lot of them were just kind of trashed, but luckily, a lot of them were, were saved. But it's beautiful. I
1: mean, it's uh, it's a work of art, and uh, the pedestal, the lens itself, uh, very functional and bright, and uh, it it does the job. It's beautiful.
0: It is, it really is. So you mentioned day trips. Uh, People can visit the lighthouse as day visitors Uh, when they do that. If they take the ferry and get off at the island, are there tours available?
1: There are tours available. We, We do a couple of different things. So we are a small staff in the summertime. We do have summer help on the dock and they do provide upon request, you know, simple tours for guests that come on the island we also have a brochure with a self-guided tour that if you follow along you can see different stations and and understand how the lighthouse worked we do offer private tours as well which tend to disembark from newport harbor for small groups of up to six individuals and then we will be offering during the summer uh tour guided tours maybe one or two days a week which are a little bit more elaborate to talk about both the lighthouse and fort hamilton so there's a variety of options there. Well,
0: of course, one of the the great things at Rose Island that I think uh, if people know about a lighthouse, buffs know about it. This is probably what they think of first: the fact that there are overnight accommodations there at the lighthouse and actually in the fort as well. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's that's
1: really what makes us survive because uh, it's very popular and people come and. And stay in the lighthouse, and you know that provides us with some cash flow to keep our site maintained and everything going strong. But we have uh, five different rooms that are available: three in the lighthouse, and one in the Foghorn building, and one in the Fort Hamilton barracks. And so, uh, in the second floor, we have the sort of the, the premium facility, which is a full full apartment with full accommodations. It's called the Keeper's apartment. And then downstairs in the museum. We have two smaller bedrooms, which are appropriate for a couple, but there aren't a lot of amenities that go along with that. All rooms, similar. And the, the, uh, the, Fort Hamilton barracks, again, a bed. I like to say we're a bed and breakfast. We offer you the bed, but no breakfast. So you bring your own breakfast compared to some of the other places. That's one thing that we don't do. We encourage people. They have to bring their own food. We sure. provide the linens. We provide the comfort. We provide the room. But most people uh, bring, if they're staying overnight, obviously they bring their own food. It's very popular. It's extremely laid back, uh, and uh, the people that come there rave about the accommodation. So it's it's a nice thing.
0: I've stayed in the upstairs apartment twice. Waking up on that island is a pretty special thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there isn't a bad view. Every window has a spectacular view. Uh, some people, when they first go in and say, well, cause we don't have a lot of curtains on the windows because you know, it, it's, we like the light coming in there and, uh, nobody complains about that. They like that once they've mm-hmm. been there and the constant crashing of this is right on the water's edge. So there's a lot of beautiful sounds of the waves and, and wind and the birds as well. So, uh, yeah. it's, but I might mention the keeper's apartment is pretty full. It's got a fully modern kitchen. We've just renovated the entire upstairs new floors, new kitchen, new bathroom. It's, uh, it's pretty premium at this point in time mm-hmm. uh, with the advent of COVID. Uh, we were co-mingling people in the house, but, uh, out of an abundance of caution, we have slowed on rentals of the downstairs rooms for just for public safety. Um, it, it remains to be seen whether we will go back to that where we're still evaluating and things are changing very quickly, but, uh, right. So for this summer, we're primarily renting the Keeper's apartment, the Foghorn building, and the Fort Hamilton barracks. Mm -hmm. Fort Hamilton barracks is extremely charming and uh, and comfortable, and uh, people really love that spot. It's kind of off the off the grid a little bit, as far as being away from the water, away from the lighthouse. So it's a family spot.
0: Talk about being on the water! That Foghorn building is pretty incredible. That's a beautiful room in there. I love that. Yeah, beautiful
1: room. It's right at water's edge and high tide. The the waves are lapping at the windows.
0: Yeah, I actually spent a night there. Yeah, <laughs> that was, nice. That was really cool. And I love the, the brick walls. Just the whole feel of that room is, is great. Yeah. Are there minimum stays?
1: We're evaluating that. I mean, we were moving in that direction uh, when the pandemic affected us in 2020 we had a backlog of reservations. And fortunately, many of the guests, There were so it's so difficult to get a place that they held their reservation over. And so, you know, for this summer, we're allowing one-night stay. So we had a lot of gaps of just one night. But I think we may be moving in the direction of a minimum stay of at least two nights. As you know, when you go to the island, you know, if you just, it's not a hotel, it's an experience. We are right. really not a hotel, we're not selling a hotel experience, we're selling a keepers experience. You want people to see what it was like to live in a nineteenth century lighthouse built in 1870. Yeah. And you can't really experience that if you pop in at six and leave at 10 the next morning. You know, it's yeah. so we, we're trying to encourage people to stay a couple of nights and experience that. So. Mm-hmm. And a yeah. lot of people are looking
0: for that, you know. So that's a positive thing. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. So how far in advance are those rooms typically booked?
1: Uh, we have some availability now. Uh, but many times they're booked at least a year in advance. Right. If you want the choice of date, then you book a year in advance.
0: Yeah. yeah. This
1: time we have not opened 2022. We're pretty well solid booked through 2021. We do have some availability in our outbuildings. Interior of the lighthouse, we're we're pretty solid right through. I mean, there are cancellations, so we have a wait list if someone is interested but um as far as the the foghorn room and the fort hamilton barracks there is some av- availability in those two rooms and our season i didn't mention we we used to be when you came there we were open year round right but it's a difficult environment out there in the winter time between the ice and the snow and the you know if someone gets stranded there and we can't get the boat out you you really have a an issue so uh, a lot of our guests are older folks and you know we just just a, the worry of of all of the parameters coming together in a perfect storm. We didn't want that to happen, so we established a season from April one to November one. That is our booking mm-hmm. season.
0: I was surprised actually; you were it was able to stay open year round before. Yeah, that makes sense. Well,
1: like I say, you know, there's a couple of issues there. The the house is heated today, modernly with oil heat. Yeah. And when the lighthouse was originally designed, they put twin 300-gallon tanks of oil in the basement. The problem is filling those today. You can't get a barge to come and deliver oil to the house. So for a couple of winters, we were hand carrying fuel to the to the. It's like feeding a farm animal. And I said, this is just not going to work for us. You know, especially yeah. when there's nobody in the house. You know, so pipes nice. damage and things like that. So we yeah. winterized the plumbing and we go from there.
0: So I know that years ago, uh, the stays in the upstairs apartment were I think were were usually a, a week, and people were expected to do certain chores like recording the weather, mowing the lawn, helping to give tours, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, does anything like that still is that part of the experience now or not?
1: Uh, we still they, we still allow people those that can and are willing to do chores will do it. We don't have the same program they had a keepers week where someone would stay for a week and basically run the lighthouse for a week. But the number of people that are able to do that is just broad gaps. So, you know, the property manager's job is to take care of that stuff. And, you know, guests that are willing to paint, or we do have some of those that are really avid people and, you know, they take care of the flag and they, they do some, you know, trimming and things like that. But um, generally we don't have that experience as it was before.
0: I remember being there one time when a family that had been there for a week was just leaving. I saw them uh, getting their stuff together and leaving. And they were, they were just, all of them looked like they were just about in tears. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The place. I'm sure yeah. you get a lot of that. We
1: have several families that are traditional week stayers. And, uh, you know, they stay for an entire week. And yeah, it's its a special place for them. I mean, there's no question yeah. about it. You know, they love it.
0: It's hard to, hard to. I'd like week. to
1: have a week to stay out there all the time by myself. <laughs> Ooh, that'd be great.
0: I'll bet <laughs> you would. I don't. Yeah. You're probably working pretty much all the time when you're there. Pretty much. Yeah. Now education is a big uh, component of what uh, the organization offers there. Do you have a lot of school groups visit?
1: We have in the past. And, you know, if you take 2020 out of the equation, in 2019, we were doing okay. Uh, We had an education director for quite a few years who had established a relationship with several communities. And so we were very active in that area. Unfortunately, you know budgets being what they are many of the schools can no longer afford to travel extensively cuz there's you know there's it's a logistical issue with the ferry to get the kids over there and things like that so we're exploring new ways to encourage visitation by local school groups uh, that would maybe not be so costly some of our fundraising is dedicated toward that thing to help offset the cost of the camp or the cost of the school visit and that type of thing so after we lost 2020, we're trying to get back to that point again. We no longer have an education director, so that's yeah. a bit of a challenge as well. So sure. we're a pretty small staff, and we, we are trying to just recover from 2020 and then hopefully move forward with some new
0: programs. Are the offices still at the Armory Building in Newport? No, no we've moved. So we
1: are now situated in an office at the Newport Shipyard. Uh, the Newport Shipyard is where we keep starfish. Uh, it's a 32-foot boat, so you just don't park it anywhere.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so we, uh, the city who owned the armory, restored that as a different into a different kind of use. It's a transient boater facility right now. So mm-hmm. we lost our space there and had to find additional in a different location. So we we do have a small office at Newport Shipyard and we keep our boat there. So that's our center of operation.
0: Oh, okay, I wasn't quite sure about that. So I understand you also offer harbor tours. I imagine those are on the Starfish, the boat you just talked on the about.
1: Starfish, yes, those are wonderful tours that uh, leave from either Fort Adams or the shipyard, and uh, they're about two hours. And we take them, tell them some of the history of Newport Harbor, and take them to Rose Island for a private tour of the lighthouse and the Fort Hamilton area. They're quite popular. We did over, even in the pandemic, I think we did 25 or 30 of those last summer. It was it was pretty good.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: a lot of people are looking for that private experience and you could do a lot more with folks in that smaller, more
0: intimate group. So yeah. it's, a,
1: it's a fun time.
0: Yeah. How many people does it take? We take six on a tour. Yeah. Well, that's a great, great opportunity for people visiting the area. You and know, One
1: other aspect of our uh, tours is the cruise ship season. So Newport is a favorite stop for the cruise ships that disembark from New York city. They usually stop in Newport and Portland and Bar Harbor and, you know, Halifax and different places like that. And pandemic just slammed that door shut so that we, we were receiving probably 1100 to 1200 visitors from the cruise ships that were coming. And those people were from all over the world. So that was an interesting thing. We didn't get anything last summer and the cruise industry has been shut down. And we're hoping to see that, that component come back because a lot of those folks, like you say, they're, you know, ex-military, you know, they they can really relate to the history of Rose Island. It's a very popular tour on their
0: spot. But let me ask you right now, is there anything else like really important you like to tell people that we haven't already touched on about Rose Island?
1: The thing that I tell people is it is a hidden jewel in Newport. If you come to Newport and you want to learn a lot about the history of Newport as it relates to the islands and the landscape around it, come to Rose Island. We are a nice change of pace from the hustle and bustle of the city and the you know the, the trinket shops and the restaurants if you want to come out and learn a little bit more about what rose island or what newport was like at those times you can come to, to rose island so that's usually what i it's it's definitely a jewel there's no question about it As you know you've been there so i mean it's a jewel in the harbor and yeah. we have an awful lot to offer
0: i refer to it that way a lot myself a jewel of Narragansett Bay. It's, yep, it's a, absolutely. That's a, maybe a, a term that's that's thrown around uh, for, for things, uh, maybe, maybe too much, but in this case, it's really, really fitting. It really is a jewel. I have one final question for you for bonus points. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What has been your favorite part personally of your work with Rose Island? Really the
1: history. I love the history. I mean, I spent my life as a scientist studying facts and figures, but I like to memorize facts and learn about things. So this has been you know, the, to know that this stuff occurred, it's, it's always fascinating to me to think about the ancestors that we had that lived on these places. You know, we, we go about our daily lives and, you know, we just see what happens right in front of us. But if you stop and think of it, especially when you go to a place like Rose Island that has these old structures there, you think about the men and women that came and went and lived their lives out in those places. It just, it blows your mind. What, what really happened there. And, uh, you know, nothing, you know, it's cumulative uh, in terms of, you know, uh, nothing. There were some spectacular events there, I'm sure. But most of it's just life. It's just living life, you know, 200 years ago, you know, what it was like. And every day that I go there and, I, you know, I think about my, my. I walk around and I touch these things and I think about the people that lived and worked there through history and it just gives you chills sometimes. You know, maybe that's the, maybe that's the connection with the, the ghosts that were there, if you will. <laughs> mm-hmm. People that lived their lives there, and you know, now I'm part of it. I'm a keeper, just like those guys were. I keep the lighthouse; that's my job. You know, so yeah, yeah, it's fun to be part of that. You understand?
0: I do understand. I, I couldn't understand more, but you have a really special place to uh, to work uh, at there, Brian Teft. I want to thank you so much. Uh, it's all uh, fascinating and interesting and and, and fun. It's just a, an amazing place. It is a jewel.
1: Well, Jeremy, my, my pleasure in helping you out. I really enjoyed talking with you today. It was a, it was a blast. I tell your listeners to come visit us at Rose Island. We'd like to see you.
2: For more on Rose Island Lighthouse, check out roseisland.org.
0: As I mentioned in the interview, the first time I saw Rose Island was in the late 80s, and I've been there many times since then. It's a very special place and the fact that the lighthouse was restored and the island was saved from developers is a great thing. I know some of our listeners are looking for lighthouses where they can stay overnight and Rose Island uh, would be at the top of my recommendations.
2: I'll have to get out there sometime. It sounds beautiful.
0: You should. Yeah, it's great.
2: Check out uslhs.org to read about the tours, the research catalog and everything the US Lighthouse Society offers. Donations and memberships help support this podcast
0: this wednesday july 7th there will be a special edition of lighthearted featuring noel lynch a tour guide at hook lighthouse in ireland which is the oldest operating lighthouse in the world and in addition to the usual audio version of the podcast i'll be posting a video version noel actually takes us on a tour of the buildings at hook lighthouse in the video watch for that this wednesday on the uslhs news blog at news.uslhs.org
2: Next Sunday, episode 127 will feature an interview with April Havens, site manager for Piney Point Lighthouse in Maryland.
0: And it'll also feature an interview with Lee Radzak, a longtime manager, caretaker of Split Rock Lighthouse in Minnesota. As has a brand new book that's a really beautiful book, so I'll be talking to him about that too. So to everyone out there who's involved with in the preservation of lighthouses and other historic sites, thanks for everything you do. We are all on the same team.
2: The American musician Jan Barry of Jan and Dean once said, and I quote, When the darkness comes, keep an eye on the light. Whatever that is for you, no matter how far away it seems. End quote.
0: I'm going to ask our guest announcers, Bob and Sherry Shock to help me out again. Wishing you all a very happy Fourth of July. As always, thanks for listening and... Keep a good light. I'm gonna let it shine.
1: 优优独播剧场